1: Every few months, I grab my kids and I prop them against a wall. Mark out how tall they've gotten. You probably do this too. It's the only way I can really see how much they've grown. Some months, it's like they have not budged an inch. The end of the year feels like the time I do this for the rest of my life. And here on the show, which is a big part of that life, if I'm being honest... I wanted a simple measurement of how far our stories have gone or how far they've got to go, a way to freeze time. Today, it's our attempt to do just that. I'm going to take you back, revisit three guests I couldn't stop thinking about long after we spoke. A journalist who was caught in the middle of a revolution, a mayor who was picking a fight with the Trump administration, and a scholar who, after we spoke, Ended up in the center of the impeachment debate. Together, these stories are a kind of yardstick on 2019. So let's start. Almost a year ago, exactly. Juro. We'd only been producing this show for a month when the opposition leader in Venezuela, Juan Guaido, swore himself in as president on the streets of Caracas.
2: El Ejecutivo Nacional.
1: Back then, I spoke with Ana Vanessa Herrero, a journalist at The New York Times, about what was happening in her country. She covered this attempted takeover as street protests became violent and as Venezuela's actual president, Nicolás Maduro, fought back against not just Guaido, but attempts the U.S. made to help him. I called Ana again earlier this month. Well, the last time we talked to you was February. I think so, yeah, that's correct. Oh my gosh, so much has changed, so sort of. So much has changed,
3: and yet so much still the same.
1: <laughs> In the months after Anna and I spoke, Juan Guaido tried again and again to take control of Venezuela. But each time, he failed. Maduro's hold on the presidency hasn't budged. Well, let's talk about now, because over the last year, there have been uprisings... In lots of other South American countries, Bolivia, Ecuador, and they've had very different outcomes. And I wonder how you see those protests from where you are in Venezuela, where it sounds to me like you feel stuck.
3: More than that, it's just that Venezuelan um, reality is so different from the rest of Latin American countries. This is not uh, something that just happened in the country starting January. I mean, this is years and years of an opposition promising those against um, the government that the government's going to change, that they're going to go, that they're going to make it. Uh, That's what happened last year, and that's what happened this year.
1: Ana says Venezuelans like her, they are tired. Here, coups have become normalized. It means making impossible choices. Venezuelans can leave the country entirely. The way dozens of Ana's relatives have. They can stay and try to hold the government accountable, the way Ana does with her journalism. But in the wake of this tumultuous year, many Venezuelans have instead made a third choice. They've tried to create a life inside
3: the chaos. And that's what many people are doing right now. That's crazy. It's so crazy what we're seeing. I am not talking at all about a normal economy or normal way of life. But we are seeing a lot of people trying to make the best out of the worst uh, situation and the worst economic crisis the country has seen.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to me to see the sort of funny side effects of the last (laughs) year. I was reading how so many people have left Venezuela, but in a way it's been helpful to the economy because people are sending money back. And so people have money. And then Maduro has decided to allow dollars to be used. And so people are beginning to spend money again. And I wonder when you see that, what you think, because in a way that seems hopeful, but then of course not much has changed at all.
3: It's, you know, it's very funny because I talk so many times with friends from the United States and they are like, oof, is it Venezuela? Is it as, as, as bad as I as everyone says, like if I go there, um, should I like wear something? Like should I have protection or security? And you know, like, look, it is a very dangerous country, of course, numbers don't lie. But when you come here and when you go out a Friday night, it's you see two Venezuelans. You see the the Venezuela that has access to US dollars and that's partying and eating out in the best restaurants you can imagine. And then outside of those restaurants are kids begging for food from people who, you know, leftovers. Um, and it's true. Uh, the economy, I don't want to say it's better.
1: It sounds like you're it, it's saying just, it's better for some people.
3: That's the thing. It's it's definitely better for some people, but still it's not better. It's never, it's, um. it's a projection. When you don't have access to water or food, and then out of a sudden you get $20 and with those $20 or a hundred, you can get a water tank and then you can install that water tank in your house and you get water once a week. But with your water tank, you're going to wa- have water all day, right? You're going to have to take care of it because you can't waste it because you're not going to get running water again for the next week, but you can have water. And then you say, oh my God, my life is so much better. It's not. You have no water. That's the truth. The thing is that you have something there making you believe that you have access to the water. So it's just an an imaginary projection.
1: That water story, it sounds like, (laughs) that sounds like you know it from personal experience.
3: Oh, oh, (laughs) I tell it, I tell it very well. Yes, (laughs) because I get running water only um, 30 minutes every two days. You heard that correctly. 30 minutes of water every two days. But I have a water tank. I actually can't afford a water tank. So I just fill my tank. And for a day and a half, I have the feeling that I have water. But I don't. And that is why, you know, we're living what we're living right now. This sense of normality that it's definitely not normal at all. Have you thought about leaving? Many times. So many times. So, so many times what what really scares me is that people actually live the lie and believe the lie that we're living in because everything we're seeing is just a lie when you go to the slums you see the real crisis when you go outside of Caracas you see the real crisis when you go outside of the of the restaurant you were eating at you see the real crisis hmm. so Juan
1: Guaido his approval rating with Venezuelans seems to have plummeted yeah What do you think the future of the opposition is? They've had such a tumultuous year.
3: I don't, for a fact, I do know that many people just, you know, don't believe in Waido anymore. But because he is the only option, not everyone is turning their backs on him. Right now, the sense of urgency for the crisis to end, for food to come, for aid to come It's so big that it doesn't allow a third way. It doesn't allow people to think or overthink about their decisions, what they're doing, who are they supporting. It's just this or Maduro. So what do you want? And if you're against Maduro, you're going to be like, whatever, I'm going to go with the other guy. What's his name again? Guaido. Okay, cool. I'm going with Guaido. So the future of the opposition, it's as it was for me, as it was five years ago. It's not good, but there's no other way.
1: Ana Vanessa Herrero, thank you so much for talking to me.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Happy 2020.
3: Thank you. You too.
1: If you want to keep up with this story, Sunday is important. That's when opposition leader Juan Guaido is going to be up for re-election as the head of the National Assembly in Venezuela. Legislators who are living in exile will vote remotely That way they can avoid pressure from Nicolas Maduro. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com
0: slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Over the course of this year, we have returned again and again to the U.S. border with Mexico as immigration policies changed and communities there adapted. Nogales is one of those communities. It's about an hour due south of Tucson. It splits Nogales, Arizona from Nogales, Sonora in Mexico. And the wall the Trump administration spent this year fighting for? Nogales has had one of those for years, actually. Mayor Arturo Garino told me all about the wall last time we talked. And he was pissed about this concertina wire that the federal government had started placing on it, not just along the top, but stacked in these long rows across the American side.
4: I don't know what they're doing. Are they testing this here in Nogales? Are we the concertina poster child? I don't think so. This is America. We're in the United States. Like I said, we have a wall.
1: I got back on the phone with Mayor Garino a couple weeks back. He said this wire is still there. Even though his congressman has fought against it, even though the city council passed a resolution condemning it. What did the resolution say? Uh, well, actually, I have
4: it right here in front of me. Basically, what it says is, is how dangerous it is uh the concertina wire, how many people live and how we trade with Mexico and, and how it makes us look like more to the military side of it than anything. And What's and, the response um, been? Actually, none. No response at all. Even though uh, Congressman Grijalva uh, supporting us, and also Senator uh, Sinema supporting us on this too, and state representatives and, and and also cities and counties north of here, they've all supported us on on, uh, on behalf of our efforts here to have the concertina wire removed, but um, but we haven't had any response from the federal government at all.
1: So it sounds like you're thinking about taking legal action, taking this to the courts.
4: Yes, that's, that's that was our next move because we wanted to give them an opportunity to see uh, what they would do and and we haven't had any response. Like I said, we've had uh, congressmen and, and senators talk about it, but that's, that's as far as it's gone.
1: You were worried when we last talked about this wire becoming like the new normal because you'd grown up in Nogales. And yeah. I wonder if you feel like in the last year, it has become the new normal.
4: You know, it feels that way. But um, for instance, on the concertina, I'll I'll tell you what's uh, the most uh, depressing thing for me is to see people, uh, the seniors that I talk to in the community, that they're very depressed and they're very concerned because they tell me, in Spanish, they say, este no es mi Nogales, which means this is not my Nogales. They remember Nogales when there was no, Wall. There was just a chain link fence and you would cross the border and just say U.S. citizen and the agents would respect you and they understood that you were a U.S. citizen and no lines uh, walking, no lines in traffic, nothing, nothing. But it seems like we're evolving to a different uh, way of doing it and uh, a little bit more dramatic than than what uh, I believe it should be.
1: I also read that there were a couple of tunnels discovered recently of people digging underneath the wall.
4: Well, we've gotten over 100 tunnels in Ogalas. It's very popular, and and the majority of the tunnels are not for for crossing people. Uh, they're they're for trying to cross drugs. But uh, we we're, we're known for having a lot of tunnels here, and and some of them are as old as during the, the Prohibition days. Hmm. That's how old some of the tunnels are. So they've been around for many 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 years.
1: But it's interesting to hear you talk because, you know, I've listened to the president talk and say how if we build this border wall, we're going to stop the drugs from coming. You're telling me you've had a border wall for years. And by the way, we have 100 tunnels back and forth and they've been there for decades. Yes. (laughs) It seems to fight that argument.
4: Well, well, it does, because uh, the biggest loads that we've gotten were at the port of entry. Seven, eight, ten tons. So just of driving tank across. Air, trying to drive across the border. Not not over or around the wall. No, right through the gate.
1: Talking to Mayor Garino, I was struck by how much common ground he seemed to have with the Trump administration. He agrees Mexico needs to do more to help Central American migrants seeking asylum. He even thinks a border wall isn't such a bad idea. But the message all that concertina wire sends, that pushed him over the edge. Made him think, going to court, it's not such a bad idea.
4: Honestly, I believe that uh, we, the border mayors, I say, and elected officials along the border from San Diego to Brownsville, we understand this more than anybody else. It's easy to talk from Washington, but you have to be here to understand it.
1: Mayor Garino, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you. Happy New Year. You too. Happy and Merry Christmas.
1: I checked in on one more story. The story of the year, actually. Impeachment, of course. One of our guests ended up in the middle of the impeachment inquiry after coming on our show. Noah Feldman, he's a professor at Harvard, He ended up in front of the Judiciary Committee earlier this month, explaining the history of this process. Noah says, testifying on television with millions of people watching, even for a guy like him, he's pretty cool and calm and collected. It was nerve-wracking.
2: You know, at the moment before I opened my mouth and I thought to myself, "Okay, Noah, you're now going to get up and you're going to actually say on national television, you know, here's what impeachment is for. Here's what the framers meant. Here's what high crimes and misdemeanors are. And if you, Congress, believe that the president actually did the things that have been reported in the prior testimony, then he's committed impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors. And then I thought to myself, whoa, you know, that's a big thing to be saying under oath on television. And I had a moment of thinking, this is serious. This is very, very serious. I felt a little bit nervous. I tried to do my best to put down the nervousness by telling myself, No smile is appropriate. No laughing or joking is appropriate. This is very, very serious business. This is high, you know, these are high crimes and misdemeanors, and this is high politics, and this really matters.
1: And for Noah, this hearing was particularly challenging because he likes to think of himself as nonpartisan.
2: Once you're in the room, you do get the feeling that it's just extraordinarily difficult at this historical moment not to be seen as partisan, even if in your mind You're just trying to clearly explain what the framers of the constitution said and had in mind. And that I think was really remarkable. I was surprised by the way that the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee either ignored what the original meaning of the constitution was, ignored what the founding fathers said, or actively attacked me and my other fellow witnesses for invoking the framers of the constitution. And these are people, these are Republicans all of whom have said publicly either that they are originalists or that they want judges who are originalists. But here they were saying, it's too hard to know what the framers would have thought. And my reaction to that was, no, it isn't. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's hard to know what the framers would have thought about the iPhone because there were no iPhones. It's not hard to know what the framers thought about the potential corruption of the electoral process because they said so again and again and again.
1: Yeah, You told the story about the Constitutional Convention and how the framers debated the idea of impeachment.
2: If you will... I would like you to think now about a specific date in the Constitutional Convention, July 20th, 1787. It was the middle of a long- And time on July summer. 20th, Gouverneur Morris and, and one other person, uh, Pinckney of uh, North Carolina, um, rather South Carolina, put a motion on the table to take impeachment out of the Constitution. It was already in there, it was already in the draft they were working their way through. But they moved to take it out, and they said the reason is you know, we're going to have election. The president's going to go up for election, so we don't need impeachment.
1: Which is so funny because it's exactly what you hear discussed now, which is just totally. waiting for the election.
2: Totally. I mean, it, it's very rare that the framers exactly anticipated a debate that we're still having today, but this is that case. Literally, the thing that that uh, Morris and Pinkney were saying is exactly what Republicans are saying today. But they were saying, okay, let's not have impeachment at all. Let's take it out of the Constitution. And then there was an intense response from a number of people. So a guy called William Richardson Davy, who was the governor of North Carolina, immediately got up and said, if you don't have an impeachment option, then the president will use any means whatever to get himself reelected. In other words, the president will game the system, he'll cheat, he'll try to use the power of his office to get an advantage over his opponent. Again, an amazingly clear anticipation of of where we are. And after this discussion, uh, Gouverneur Morris got up and actually said, I was wrong. I retract my emotion. Let's keep it in. I realize now that it's not enough just to rely on elections. If a president is corrupt and tries to corrupt the electoral process, we need to be able to impeach. So that happened, and we know exactly what everyone said, because Madison took careful notes the whole day, and then he went over his notes to make sure that he had had down what everyone had said. And so this is one of those rare instances where we don't have to speculate about what the framers thought. We know what they thought, and we know why they put impeachment in the Constitution.
1: So after your testimony, the House agreed on two articles of impeachment. And we've already seen Senator Mitch McConnell and others come out and basically said, listen, we've made up our mind. We're working hand in glove with the White House on this. Putting on your historian hat, I just wonder, is this happening the way the founders imagined?
2: No, it's really not. And here... We have to admit that our founders, great as they were in some dimensions, made mistakes. The framers were afraid of what political parties could do, but they thought, and Madison especially thought, that they had a solution. They they thought that by having a Senate made up of people who were selected by state legislatures, they would be getting fine, idealized people who would not get caught up in party politics, and they would have such excellence and such diversity at the national level that national political parties would never emerge. And that was just false. Like, they were just wrong about that. And Madison discovered, you know, within five or six years that he had been wrong. And then he went on to be one of the founders of one of the two first national political parties. So he acknowledged that he had been wrong. As a result, there are things in the original constitutional design that can be distorted by political parties. And the impeachment process is one of them, right? I mean, the idea in the Constitution is the House will impeach, the Senate will hold a trial, and will make an independent decision. But if the president comes from the political party of the majority of the Senate, the senators may just judge, even if he ought to be removed, their political party would suffer. And so then they would suffer. And so then they can just make a judgment that they're better off protecting the president no matter what. And if that happens, then the constitutional structure has been thwarted by party politics. And the framers would be horrified by that. But they also, you know, they're somewhat to blame. They, they knew there was a danger of parties and they tried to defeat them and they, they failed.
1: Hmm. I mean, I'm glad you raised this partisan idea, the fact that the parties are key actors here separate from individuals really i wonder you were you were known as someone who would work across partisan lines in a bipartisan way you worked in the bush administration or worked with the bush administration yeah can you imagine that happening now for you
2: well, you never want to say never. I mean, my own views haven't changed. You know, I mean, I, I went to work for the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance in Iraq, which turned into the Coalition Provisional Authority. That was all, you know, I wasn't a political appointee, but I was working essentially for the Bush administration and for people appointed by the Bush administration. Everyone there just about was a, was a card carrying Republican. I still feel that I would be very glad to work with reasonable Republicans on anything that would advance the, advance the national national interest. So that's my self-perception. The reality, though, and I understand the reality is a thing, is that after the testimony that I gave, for the short term, I will be perceived as partisan. And I guess I accept that world without embracing it. I wish we had lived in a less partisan world. And we might get back to that. It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But it may be that there's a future time when American politicians realize that our system is actually designed to serve the middle, not to serve the extremes.
1: Noah Feldman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Have a great uh, New Year.
2: Thanks, you too. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Bye. Yeah.
1: Bye. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. If you are looking to give a friend a late gift, subscribe them to What Next. Seriously. I'm Mary Harris. You can follow what I'm up to on New Year's Eve and pretty much anytime on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I will catch you back here in the new year.
2: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming...